Good morning, church. No, oh, that's horrible. Good morning, church. There we go. Hey, a couple things I want to tag on to what uh, Pastor Kevin said. First off, if you didn't know Minnesota had a hockey team, you learned that this morning. <laughs> I didn't know. All right, uh, and then uh, also, mud volleyball. Let's be honest. That's an exciting student ministry event. And parents in here, let me ask this question. Wouldn't it be nice for you to actually know that your junior hire had to shower after this? Because you actually get to know that, because they're going to be covered in mud. So it's the one time you get to know, hey, my junior hire actually showered. So hey, so there's a good reason to make sure your junior hire is at mud volleyball tonight. Pastor Kevin does a great job with their students, and they're going to have a blast with that tonight. Um, before we dive into our message, as Pastor Kevin said, we're diving into Nehemiah chapter 9. But before we do that, let's pray. Bow with me. Father God, we are just so thankful we can gather here. God, I ask that you be with the message this morning. May it be your words and not mine, for your words are wise. God, we just ask that this just carries something. We pull something from the words of history and scripture that we take with us. Praise all in your name. Amen. I want to welcome you all here this morning, joining us online. Thanks for coming in online as well. So we're going to be diving into Nehemiah 9. But as we do, I need to recap a little bit. This is week five of a six-week series. So next week, Pastor Nate's going to close us out with this series. And let me be honest, all right? Um, when we started talking about sermon series moving forward, we had a couple ideas. And then somebody brought me this idea of, hey, let's do a series through Nehemiah. And I thought about that for a minute, and, and here's why I was like, ah, a little weary of it. To be complete full disclosure, as a pastor, I will tell you right now, and as somebody that preaches, there are just scriptures that preach themselves. Book of James, I could read two verses, you're like, hey, I get that. Awesome, let's go home. Nehemiah is not that. So this guy has to do a little bit more work, and I guess I don't care to do that sometimes. But that's why Nehemiah is a little bit harder, and uh, I want to spend some time in that this morning, spend some time prepping that. I want to talk about a couple weeks previous as we've dove in week one. Pastor Nate opened us with as we're talking about a time period around 445 B.C. And what had happened was because the, the people of God, the Israelites, had, had fallen away from him, they're not, they were in captivity. And they were in captivity in Babylon, which got conquered by the Persians. And then all of a sudden 445 rolls around and they start to have this exodus back to, to Judah. And Nehemiah is one of those people that leads people back. And so in week one, Pastor Nate opened with prayer as they prayed about this. And as he set this up and talked to the king. And then we started talking about rebuilding the walls. Because as they got to Jerusalem, they realized, hey, there's no walls. How do you protect a city that has no walls? So we saw that each person was responsible for the wall that was right in front of where they were living. And then we see the conclusion of chapter 6 being the building of the walls. And then chapter 7 gives us this genealogy of who has come back. And then last week, Pastor Dan in chapter 8 talked about Ezra reading the law. And he talked about how the people realized that they had made some missteps. And Pastor Dan so eloquently told us, you know, I will not go. I will not go into culture and the stumbles that culture brings us. And that leads us to chapter 9. And so as they read the law in chapter 8, you have to ask, well, what's chapter 9 about? Well, chapter 9 is just a prayer. And you're like, well, how interesting can that be? And I'm going to tell you right now, it is a powerful prayer. It's actually one of the three big national prayers of God's people you can find in the Old Testament. Another one being Daniel chapter 9. But in Nehemiah 9, we get this awesome prayer. 
And let's dive in here real quick. So starting in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 9, and like Kevin said, we're going to be in Nehemiah 9 most of the day, so just we're going to camp out there. So in verse 4, here's what we have. On the stairs of the Levites stood, and let's just say Jeshua and the gang. Don't mark that out and put the gang, but we're not going to go through all the names. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Verse 5, then the Levites, Jeshua and the gang, all right, you know, they stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So as we, as we see this, the first thing I want to say is this. The Levites are the priestly tribe. And we have this because David has set this up. So, so these are the ones that are studying the law. They know the law well. And they kind of lead the spiritual aspect of the people. So yeah, maybe you want to call them pastors. That's fine. But no, they're the priestly tribe. So they're, they're the priests. And that's where the high priest is chosen from. And they start off this prayer by doing something that we really all should do. They recognize who God is. Lord your God, from everlasting to everlasting, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. It's like a start of a good letter. It's like that salutation of how we should start prayer of, hey, hey, God, whatever name you want to use, Alpha, Omega, Fountain of Living Water, that, that's really what this is. And as they continue on, starting in verse 6, here's what we get. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the one I can't pronounce. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Man, that's an awesome thing to say. You are the Lord alone and you have been overseeing all of our people, all of the lands. You have always been there and that's what they're diving into. But there's something in this, this prayer that I want you to catch. Simple word. Simple three letters. Simplest of words. The word you. And, and that word you, every time you read it in the Hebrew, it references one of the most powerful, actually the most powerful name of God in the Old Testament, and that being Yahweh. Yahweh God. It is mentioned 30 times alone in this prayer. 30 times alone do they call on the name of God in this prayer. Why? Well, as we talked about last week, as, as Ezra read the law, they were cut by it. They were upset about it because they knew there were some problems. And now they're calling on God. The easiest thing to be would say this is like, man, how... How easy is it for us to look at our culture and be like, man, I need to call on God. Or maybe you look at your own life and your own family and say, hey, there's some things going on. I, I need to call on God. The sad part is it's easy for us to look at that when times are rough. But how many of us look at that when times are great? I'm not saying this time right now is great. But what I'm saying is when times are going well, do we still call on God? 
and give him the, the praise and the blessing. But we look at our world today, it's easy to say, man, we need to call on God right now. And the reason they're doing this and why this is happening is because as they've been discovered last week with the law and knowing that, hey, they have gone out of the lines, they've realized upon an honest assessment of where the people were, they called out to God. They looked at themselves and said, hey, we're not where we need to be. We're nowhere where we need to be at all. And then this continues, this prayer, verses 9 and 10 says this, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Verse 10, And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all of the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Let me hit that for a second. And you made a name for yourself. What does that mean? And you made a name for yourself. When, when we look at the Old Testament, something that we do a bad job as as 21st century Christians is we have this awesome word of God that's come through us through the spirit of God, and we have all this knowledge. We know the beginning and the end, the middle of the story. We see the upper story being God's movement. We see the lower part of the story being the people of God as they move through scripture. And we use that knowledge, and when we look and study text in the Bible, when we look at people in the Bible, we expect them to have that same knowledge. Why are you doing this? Don't you know? No, they don't. At best, especially in the Old Testament, they might have had maybe the oral stories of, of Moses and of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and so they knew the stories. They, they knew why the Exodus happened. That's been passed down through oral tradition. So yes, they do know the word of God in a way. But sometimes we expect, okay, they know about Jesus, right? No, Jesus is not there yet. And we do a, we do a disservice sometimes as 21st century Christians when we look at characters of Scripture and we think that they have all the knowledge they do and we're like, why did you mess up? Why did you do this? And, and then we see this, Man, God, you're making a name for yourself. Why is that in this prayer? You gotta realize that 445 BC, what did people know about God? Okay, knew he's the creator of the world. They knew about the Exodus. But they probably got to see firsthand his righteousness and his discipline. Because they are facing, they face captivity. Now they're facing this task. They just built the wall. They realize they haven't been following the law. And you have to ask, like, is there grace and mercy? And how do we know that? And that's what they're saying is we know that you made a name for yourself because you delivered our people back in Exodus. So that's what's happening here. That's why they're saying that. That's why it's in that prayer so they get to know God on a closer level. And they start listing his attributes. All of chapter 9 is you get to see part of the story of God and things God has done. The great thing about that is, you know, God does everything perfect. How would you feel if people just listed you by your attributes or by how they saw you? The easiest way to describe that is look back when you were in high school and what, like, what would lit up above your head as who you were. Were, 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 you, that, were you that jock? Uh, were you that, uh, the band geek? Oh, I'm sorry, that's inappropriate. Just the band person. Were you, were you the, the hyper-studious person that studied all the time? Were you the cheerleader? What, what were you? Because as they're saying this is, God, you're making a name for yourself. 
They're getting to know God as by what his movement is through their story. And they get to see God, and they get to see mercy because they see deliverance, but they also see righteous judgment. The people of Israel had some struggles. They just did have some struggles. When you look at the history of the Old Testament and you follow the people, man, there's this vicious cycle that they got caught up in. And I've simplified it. There's some other steps in here. But here's what this cycle kind of looks like of the people of Israel. Israel serves the Lord. Then after some time, Israel falls into sin and sin separates us from God. So then God's judgment comes. Israel is captured or enslaved, and then Israel cries out to God. And this is just a basic summary, because if we're talking about like the book of Judges, we'd plug that in at the end that Israel cries to God, and then God raised up a judge, then Israel serves the Lord. But this is just a basic feel for how the people of Israel were. And then all of a sudden we see that, and I'm going to tell you right now, this happened time after time after time. But if I could be bold enough to say, we get arrogant enough and we see that and we're like, man, what stupid people. We do. We look at that and we're like, man, they just don't get it. Let me speak to parents for a minute. Let me just talk to parents for a second. Parents, maybe you have a couple kids. Not just one, you have a couple kids. And you have that one kid, when you tell them, hey, don't do this, they actually listen to you and it never happens. But then you have that other kid that they have to touch the hot stove seven times in order to learn that's not a good idea. Let's be honest. There's something like that. See, I don't understand that side because I'm the youngest. and Everybody knows the youngest children in families, they learn from just being told. That's just what, how it happens. It just is. I was blessed to have an older sibling that blazed the great path for me and did so horrible things sometimes that I just got to walk in between. This is what it was. Youngest children in here represent, amen? Yeah, that's right. But then we look at this, and guys, we as Christians, we look at this text, we look at Scripture, we look at the Old Testament, and we're like, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they just get it? It's black and white. God said, don't do it, and you're doing it. If we held ourselves to that standard, if God told us not to do it, we shouldn't do it. Man, that's bold. So, I mean, I guess the simple way to say it is this. Time and time again, people failed. Actually, time and time again, we fail. Do we get that? Is there a time in your life when you can look back and say, hey, I didn't do this well. I failed. And I'm going to tell you right now, if it takes you longer than a minute to find that point, I'm probably going to tell you you're struggling with something else. But we look at the people of Israel and like, why don't they get it? They were stubborn people. Can anybody, let me ask this, let me, let's be open and honest with each other because we're all about rebuilding with honesty today. Who in here says, you know what, I am a little bit stubborn. I'm a little bit stubborn. Oh, cool, a whopping like five people, okay, great, a bunch of liars in here. All right, so what we're talking about is like, you know, these people are stubborn and, and like they fail time and time again, but God still provides deliverance because that's his plan. And they cried out to him and he answers them because guess what? When we cry out, he answers us. So when we read the whole of chapter 9, and let me just summarize the middle section of this chapter, you get to see all the wonders of what God has done through their history. They recount everything that's gone on, you know, from 
before 400 BC to 600 BC, they recount the times that God has involved himself and they see the greatness of God. And then we come to verses 36 and 37, which says this, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy. It's fruit and it's good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Verse 37, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So what, what's happening here is the people are saying, hey, God, we know why this has happened to us. We get it. We get it. We're, we're slaves this day in the land that you gave to us. They get stuck in this mentality of, you're right, we're not worthy. They start moaning to God that, okay, we don't get what we thought we were entitled to. What you promised Abraham, or actually even before he was Abraham, what you promised Abram is not ours because we have gone the wrong way. Man, how many of us have been there? That, oh, I can't, God won't reach me. I've done too much. I know why I'm being punished. All of a sudden when bad things happen to us, we're like, man, I deserve that. But church, there's a problem with getting stuck there. Because then all of a sudden, that failure we've talked about, it turns to something called shame. And guess what? Shame is not of God. Guilt is of God. Shame is not. Shame is something that Satan wants you to know, hey, you've done this and you're too far gone. And that's not okay. So the people, as they're crying out, they're yearning for something. And what the people of Israel are yearning for is they're yearning for a clean slate. So what has happened is they've heard the law from Ezra, and now the Levites have opened this prayer, and they're calling out to God. Here's the good news. At least they recognized something, and then the Levites took over and said, we need to pray. For example, this last weekend, uh, my mom has come into town. So her and my wife, Megan, have been hanging out and they're talking. And, and so when my mom comes in town, I get to hear all these stories told to my wife about how I was when I was a kid. They're not that interesting, really. Um, anyway, but one of the stories that's told always is I'm the youngest by seven years. And so one time I got in this huge argument with my brother because older brother didn't like him, whatever. Siblings, don't listen to me, okay? And I got so mad at him that I threw the screwdriver at him and it stuck into his foot. Funniest thing in the moment. Um, and then all of a sudden, what I love about it, so if you're like a boy mom or a boy parent here, here's the coolest thing about boys. It's all fighting until something goes wrong and then they bond together like glue. All right, because at that moment, we were like, well, we're both getting punished for this somehow, so let's fix this. So as we're both in there in the bathroom, mom and dad are not home. You know, my parents are awesome, left us home alone all the time probably. And so we're trying to wash all the blood off, stop the bleeding the best way. We as like a nine-year-old and 15 or whatever it is know how. And we stopped it. We're like, sweet, we're home free. Mom's never going to know, never going to you know, have a panic moment. Great. So we're done. We're back to doing what we're doing, probably still yelling at each other now. And mom comes home. But the coolest thing about boys is we stopped the problem, but we forgot something. Mom walks into the bathroom, and it's like a murder scene in the bathroom. I, don't, I guess we got to clean up. I don't know. And so she sees all this blood and then knows something is wrong. We're like, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> you know, so, and what's cool about that is, like, 
That's what's happened here. The people of Israel have saw, hey, we have done something wrong. And the Levites said, we need to all get together and we need to pray. We need to call on to God. And that's what they're doing. Their people are yearning for a clean slate. Now, now church, I don't want you to hear something that I'm not saying. This is not a shortcut. They're not calling us, hey, God, take all this away and give us nothing to have to do. Give us no punishment. Give us no, no like, requirements. Nothing we have to be faithful about. Because, church, let me tell you something. If you in your spiritual life think that you found a shortcut, that you're like, you know what? I can go from, like, believer straight to teacher, and I don't need any discipleship, I don't need accountability, I don't need mentorship. If you think you have found that shortcut, let me tell you something. What you've actually found is not a shortcut, you found a cul-de-sac. And what I mean by that is you're going to go down that road and you're going to turn right back around and you're going to find yourself worse than you were or right where you were at. There are no shortcuts in this. And I promise you, I've looked for them. They're not there. And so now the people are crying out and saying, hey, we get it. We know why we're here. And there is some awesomeness about this. Because when you look at the Old Testament, people look at me sometimes and say, man, the God of the Old Testament is anger, judgment, wrath, awful. It's not true. You do see grace in the Old Testament. You do see goodness in the Old Testament. You do see mercy from God in the Old Testament. If you don't think you do, let me point to the direction of David. David, a man after God's own heart. Let me tell you something. David, who had some problems, and I have kids now, so keep it clean as possible, he fell into temptation, and he saw a person he liked and he wanted, and he just took it. It's the best way I can say it. And took it. And yes, God did pass some judgment, but you know what? He comes back into the fold. And let me tell you something about that. People around might have looked at that and said, what? That's insane. That's not a great God. How can he not just show punishment and wrath? Do you think Bathsheba's father thought that was awesome? After what he did to his daughter, do you think he thought it was great? The goodness and the mercy of God? Well, let me tell you what makes this come full circle and why I love this. Let's drive into the New Testament. So a couple thousand years later, have this awesome speaker and writer by the name of Paul. So if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 3, we hear this from the words of Paul, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me break that down, because there's a lot in there. And the first thing I want to say is this. We, we point out the righteousness of God, and then we point out, we're talking about former sins, but there's this word in here, and it's a really churchy word called propitiation. And everybody, let's say it together, propitiation. 
Right, ready? Go. Propitiation. All right. So what does this word mean? So because I have to do some study, I did look up some Greek, where we get from the New Testament, and also some Hebrew, where we see this word. So this word propitiation, when you look at the Hebrew and in the Old Testament, you see that same word being used for covering or mercy seat. And in the New Testament, that word substitution. So on a basic level, Jesus is the substitute for what we are supposed to deserve in punishment. That's what it is. However, I can't leave it just there. Because there's this really cool, nerdy fact that I loved when I was doing some study. When you look at that word covering, where it's found in the Old Testament, is that same word that's used for propitiation also is referred to as the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Which, if you don't know, is the presence of God which is awesome to me. So for the two of you that love that, write that down, all right? Just for you. So when we see that, and we see in Romans, we see about God's righteousness, and then we also see it refer to former sins. And what I want to say is this, because it's one of the coolest things that I think about God. When Jesus took it to the cross, he just didn't cover who was there at that moment. Church, it, it covers past, present, and future. The act of Jesus on the cross also goes back and justifies the grace and the goodness of God the Father of the Old Testament. I love that. I love that. And the reason I love that is because I'll be honest, I'm a New Testament scholar kind of person. I really am. So I love when I have that tie into the Old Testament because then I'm like, yes, we need this and I love that. So even the sins that we're talking about in the Old Testament, Jesus is the one taking on those gift and that goodness that God gave out then. So what are we to do with that? Well, we already see that the people were yearning for a clean slate, and maybe that's what you're yearning for today. Maybe you're saying, hey, I wish I could start new. Well, hey, good news, you can. That's, that's the best thing I can tell you, you can. And so let me tell you something. Like when we look at this and we say, hey, can I start new? And I have that yearning. What does it look like? What does it look like? Before I dive right into that, I want to tell you something that probably irritates me most of all. As a pastor, when I have people come into my office and talk to me, or if we're meeting for coffee or whatever, and I hear this line, and it absolutely sets a fire inside of me. And the line is this. Chase, I am too far gone for God to love me. That line cuts me to the heart and it makes you want to just come out swinging. And here's the reason behind that. Church, we need to know there's a, there's a, there's a truth and it's an absolute truth. You are not too far gone to hear the good news. Hear me there. You are not too far gone to hear the good news. Because when we get in that mindset that we are too far gone to hear the good news, when we get that mindset, when we start thinking that way, do you know what that's doing? Let me tell you what that does. When we think that we're too far gone to hear the good news, that I'm too far gone to get the love of Christ, that I'm too far gone for God to love me and accept me, when we do that, we are minimizing the awesomeness that is the cross of Christ. The sacrifice of the Son of God, of God himself on the cross for our sins, when we say we're not good enough, we make that smaller. And that's not okay. 
because we're taking the foundation of our faith, which is the cross of Christ, and we're not making it what it is, which is infinitely important. The number one thing that you will find in your life that we need. So church, you're not too far gone to hear the good news. And the people know this. And this is why in Nehemiah 9, you have the Levites leading this prayer, and you have people crying out to God, saying, Yahweh, 30 times, calling out to God 30 times, saying, we know why we're here. We know why we're in this position. We know why we're struggling. We get it. We did not do well at following the law. And But that turns a little bit. And you hear this tone of, I'm not worthy, that I'm not good enough. And even in, the, even in the Old Testament, to end that chapter, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our, Levi, our Levites, and our priests. What that's saying is we're renewing this today, here and now. We're following your law, and we're following God. Because guess what? We are worthy to do this again. Even though our people have failed over and over again, we're doing it again. Church, I don't know where you're at in life. I, I honestly don't know where you are, period. And, and maybe it's a struggle in your relationships. Maybe it's a struggle in your family. Maybe you look back and say, hey, Chase, you know that failure we talked about earlier when I have failed? I look back on that, and it's what brings me shame. Hear me on this. No matter what's gone on in your life, no matter where you have been, what you have done, God wants you. He wants you. Hear it. Doesn't need you. Doesn't like to have you. He wants you. And man, to feel wanted. Doesn't that feel great? No matter what you've done, no matter what I've done. When I used to do student ministry, how I used to explain the grace of God, one of the, probably the worst illustrations biblically I ever gave. But like, when I was a kid, some of the best candy, who remembers Pez candy? Pez was awesome. Who remembers Pez? Anybody remember Pez? Yeah, absolutely. So like, how I explain the grace of God to, to younger people is, hey, it's like that never ending Pez dispenser. You just lift up the head and pull a piece out and it never ends. It doesn't end at piece nine. It's like 100 million. So what I'm saying, church, is guess what? What I can tell you with certainty is sometime tomorrow or this week, you will fail. You are going to make a mistake. But if you belong to Christ, if you've given your life to him, it's okay. Just go to your knees and say, God, I get it. Teach me better ways. Don't let me fall into this again. Because as we talk about rebuild and rebuilding, do you want to know how you build a relationship with God? We do that by honest confession. Honest confession is how we build that relationship with God. And, and that's what the people are doing here in Nehemiah chapter 9. They heard from Ezra, hey, we're wrong. We went. We didn't listen. We did go. And guess what? We're praying and calling out to God saying, we're done. We need something new. We need to recommit ourselves. Because towards the end there, like I said, they started to feel unworthy. And, and church, maybe you were there this morning. Online, maybe you're saying, hey, I feel that way. 
So what I want to say to you is this. The greatest thing about having the Bible is you can look into it. And here's what you get to see. We already talked about David. I'm pretty sure most of us are not that far away yet. But, you know, hey, David had some big struggles, but he came back in the fold. Or, or maybe your problem is, hey, look, let's look at Paul. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, great speaker and missionary. Guys, he killed people. And God intervened in his life and said, I want you. And I'm pretty certain that none of you have gotten to that point. I'm just, I'm just pretty certain. If you have, talk to Pastor Dan. That's his forte, okay? All right? So that's what I want to say this morning. Stop getting stuck in that mentality that you're not worthy. How I want to end it this morning is this way. Because maybe you need to hear it. Maybe online you need to hear it. Do you know how God views you? God views you in a lot of ways. You know, we have those awesome texts or those, you know, coffee mug quotes. Yeah, he views us as, as the clay and he being the potter. He views us as the chosen. He views us as the church. He views us as the redeemed. He views us as the forgiven. He views us as his workmanship. And most importantly, he views us as his children, as his son and daughter. So church, guess what? You're worthy. You're worthy.